Hello, everyone, and welcome to the NCEA podcast. This is John Reyes, the Executive Director of Operational Vitality for NCEA. Welcome to this week's show. This week's episode is sponsored by Renaissance Learning. And after months of speculation about the effects of school building closures on student achievement, Renaissance is offering its research-based assessment on the impact. Based on insights from more than 5 million student assessments, the How Kids Are Performing report provides guidance to help educators address learning gaps created by the pandemic. And today's podcast will specifically explore the impact on Catholic and private school student achievement. And you can learn more on Renaissance's website and search for the How Kids Are Performing report. And joining us this week are Dr. Jean Kearns, Vice President and Chief Academic Officer with Renaissance Learning, and Dr. Julie Vogel, Vice President of Government Affairs for Private and Catholic Schools for Renaissance Learning. Welcome, Jean and Julie. Thank you, John. Glad to be here. Thank you. Awesome. Julie, I'll start with you. Can you talk a little bit about just your professional background and what led you to your current work with Renaissance Learning? Oh, thanks. Uh, My professional background is long. I've been in education for 34 years. I'm a third-generation teacher, uh, former um, Catholic school principal, assistant superintendent, and superintendent. And a few years ago, due to some family obligations, left leadership in Catholic schools to work for Renaissance. Um, Fantastic company to work for. They provide online assessment and data options for kids, practice products, anything that can help kids work remotely and online. been a, been a great journey for me. So I'm happy to be here today with my colleague, Dr. Jean Kearns, who's one of my favorite people in the whole world, um, to share with you the HCAP report. Yeah, and, and Dr. Vogel, thanks for that background and that context. And it's so great that even in your current work with Renaissance Learning, you're able to extend really decades-long experience and service to Catholic schools and Catholic education. So that's really awesome, and, and I'm sure our, our listeners will appreciate that context. Uh, Dr. Kearns, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, your work with Renaissance Learning. Well, it's I guess it's like a love fest here because Julie's one of my favorite people too. Uh, like Julie, uh, I am also a third-generation educator, so in our family, we like to joke that it's uh, in our blood and it's around the dinner table, because uh, we're all in it. Uh, our, our, my primary background, uh, a lot of years in public schools, but also worked in independent schools, and am no stranger to Catholic schools, because my sister actually worked in Catholic schools for a number of years. So uh, as a young kid, she's much older than I am as a young kid. Sometimes when I was on breaks, I was sitting in the back of her uh, of her classroom uh, in, in uh, at Holy Spirit School in Wilmington, Delaware, uh, you know, kind of just taking things in. Uh, so um, my it's it, it's education. It's uh, just uh, it's just part of the DNA for us. So it's really refreshing to know that uh, that your work in Renaissance Learning is informed by your own personal experience as and professional experience as educators working in schools of all kinds. And I think that's really important, especially if our learners are or our listeners aren't familiar with uh, Renaissance Learning. So uh, could either of the two of you really talk? briefly about uh, what is that Renaissance Learning provides in terms of solutions for schools. Julie, you want to do that one? You want me to handle that? You can go ahead, Dean. Well, you know, really, John, our, our product lines really could be kind of put into two buckets. One is assessment, uh, and that that's a major thing for us. So we are the producers of STAR assessment, STAR reading, STAR math, and STAR early literacy 
which conceivably are the most widely used computer adaptive tests in the world. So in a normal year, of course, nothing's been normal lately. Uh, in a normal year, we probably give over 80 million uh, assessments worldwide. Uh, so that's one major bucket for us, assessment. And the other major bucket uh, is practice. Uh, and in both assessment and practice, we're focusing on both reading and math. Uh, so uh, in the reading practice side of the house, it's Accelerated Reader, uh, our flagship original product, Myon, our digital uh, library, uh, and for mathematics and other content areas, our new Freckle practice app. And then we've got some other things. We have Schoolzilla, which helps you slice and dice your data and things like that. But it's really uh, data focused on assessment and practice. So no doubt, if you heard some of the products that Dr. Kearns was talking about, you might recognize a few of those pieces and go, oh yeah, I remember using them. And I and I remember even as a Catholic school student using Accelerated Reader, but then also using the STAR products uh, as a teacher and as an educator. So uh, great to know that those are the kinds of products that Renaissance has. And, and that is an important context for the core of our discussion, which is really talking about this study, this how kids are performing study. So can you talk a little bit in terms of what, what motivated Renaissance learning to 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 tackle this study? What were some of the, the central research questions and, and how did the actual uh, uh, conducting of the study look like? Well, I, I think what motivated for us was a responsibility that we have. I mean, we're one of the world's largest assessment providers, so we know that we're sitting on a lot of information. Like I said, 80 million assessment records in the average year. Um, and so right out of the gate, I mean, I could show you articles, you know, schools hadn't even been closed a week or two before people were already speculating about what the COVID slide would be. You know, what's going to be the impact of these school closures on the academic progress of the average student? So we knew that there was a critical question that needed to be answered. Uh, what is the nature of the COVID slide? And we knew because of our scale and because of the assessment elements uh, that we work with, that we'd have a data set that could really provide some pretty definitive answers to that. Uh, so we just kind of immediately, it wasn't very long into the COVID closures before the, you know, the, the beginning of the conversations that became this report emerged. Uh, that said, there were a lot of reports back in the spring of last year that were really predictions and projections about what the COVID slide would be. So one major thing about how kids are performing is it is not a prediction or a projection. It is the actual analysis of back to school data uh, of kids this fall to say, how did kids start this fall in comparison with what we would have thought was typical or you know what we expected uh, in prior years? And uh, we found some interesting things. And just for, for the benefit of our listeners, a lot of those projections in the spring around the time that the pandemic hit, what was the general feeling about where where kids would end up as a result of school closures uh, driven by the pandemic? So what was like, what were, what were yeah. people looking into the crystal ball and, and seeing before well, this research? Let's talk about what what crystal ball they were looking into because uh, you know to make a prediction, you gotta you gotta model it based on something. And most of the models of the spring, looked at the historical information on the summer slide. So the you know, theory went like this. Kids are away from us. You know, they're away from the school building. 
the closest thing that we've ever really studied is summer, and that's not really directly a comparison, but a lot of the predictions were based on historical summer school uh, slide kind of models. Uh, they ranged a whole lot, John. Some of them were what I would call, you know, moderate impacts, you know, maybe three months, you know, three, four months, something like that. Some were really dire, and some of them I just, I didn't even understand. I mean, there was one that, you know, estimated kids were going to lose, you know, like 220 days of instruction, and I, I really in my mind, I couldn't like see how that was possible. I mean, how do you how do you miss 90 days of school and regress by 220 days? So you know, the good news is uh, things did not come back on the dire end of the scale, but definitively, yeah, kids started uh, this year differently than they would have historically had. Anything you want to add, Julie? No, it was it was interesting for me to read through the spring predicted data. Um, I was shocked at kind of, first of all, like the dichotomy of it. There were some people who were really were predicting very bad things to happen to our kids, which I didn't understand and couldn't see either. And then the, yet there was the other end that, well, it probably isn't going to matter that much at all. So it was really an interesting time. And things seemed to be all over the place. Yeah. And um, now, since fall has come, and we've had an opportunity to have kids back in school, and we have actual real data to look at, I think it's a lot easier to help teachers and systems move forward now. Yeah, one thing that was interesting, you know, Paul Van Hippel, University of Texas, Austin, was commenting uh, recently in some journals about those predictions early on, John. And he said, you know, we needed to understand that those were statistically informed guesses. Uh, and Megan Caulfield, who wrote one of the largest study, or I say studies, it was just one model from the spring, she said what amazed her was that the predictions went further than they ever anticipated. And she said, and, and these are her words, she said, some people spoke with the about the results of these works uh, with more confidence than we had in them as researchers. So that's why we didn't get into that fray early in the spring, because it was just uh, statistical modeling. Uh, so we were excited that we could do this with actual back-to-school data from this fall. Uh, and the other thing that was possible for us was because of our scale, we had kids in the sample from all 50 states and D.C. So as we share these results from what kids are performing, it is the largest and the first national study on the COVID slide to date. Awesome. So let's slice and dice this, right? So yeah. this study gives us a comprehensive picture. We talked about sort of this 5 million uh, figure in terms of the, the number of student assessments that helped inform yeah. the study. Talk a little bit about what did we find uh, broadly speaking, and then maybe uh, if we have any specific findings uh, related to private or Catholic schools. Sure. Uh, broadly speaking, and, you know, and, and what's interesting is what predictions came true and which other ones did not. Uh, and right out of the gate, a lot of people were predicting that math would be more impacted than reading, and that is absolutely what we found. Uh, if you think of it just in terms of percentile ranks, uh, the average grade level, you know, kids at certain grade levels, we were only able to model this from basically first grade up through eighth. But across the board, most grades are down about one or two percentile points in performance in reading. Uh, the average grade level, though, is down seven percentile ranks uh, for mathematics on average, with some grade levels starting the year 10 or 12 or more uh, percentile ranks behind. So clearly that prediction uh, that uh, math would be more impacted than reading absolutely came true. Um, 
Here, however, is a prediction that did not come true. There was a lot of narrative that really focused in on, and, and, and I saw the headlines, kindergarten through grade three or grade two, the most impacted. And, and those were some of the predictions. That's not actually what we found. We actually found that the most impacted grades were around grades four, grade five, and grade six. Uh, and we're, we're doing some additional analysis right now to speak to, uh, you know, why that is. And, and actually, I mean, we could do a whole podcast just on that. If you think about it, there's just some really, really tough content uh, at grades four, five, right. and six, particularly in math. I mean, fractions, decimals, percentages, the conversions, those are hard topics for kids in a good year let alone a year where things are disrupted. So it just turns out that those are grade levels that actually have some of the hardest content. Uh, and so it's no shock to us uh, when we look at well, you know the hindsight of 2020 eyes uh, that, wow, those are the grades that were the most impacted. So math, far more impacted more than reading. And actually grades four, grade five, grade six seem at least so far to have taken the brunt uh, of, the, of, the, of, the, of the impact. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. And, and I think uh, a follow-up question to that is, are, did we see any sort of differences when it came to private and Catholic schools? So we, we saw about the, the impact that we maybe could have expected in terms of math, but maybe less so in reading. Uh, did those trends mirror in Catholic and private schools? They did. And uh, Julie, do you want to review that? Or I, I've got the numbers if, uh, if you don't have them handy. So in a, in a big picture sense, I think it's important to note, first of all, that Catholic school kids and private school kids have always outperformed the public school kids. And there's a good reason for that. And we could do a whole podcast just on that alone, too. And so I think the same rang true in a big picture perspective during COVID slide are still our Catholic school kids outperformed our public school counterparts and our losses weren't as significant as they were in private schools for public schools. That being said, I still think there's room for growth and things for us to think about in Catholic schools as we continue to move forward through this pandemic. So I want to make it clear that while our results were better, I still think there's room for growth. Yeah. Yeah, I'll give you the hard numbers. Overall, in reading, very little impact on the Catholic school and private school population. In fact, a little bit ahead. Uh, math, uh, where I said that the uh, you know overall students were down about seven percentile ranks, uh, the average student in a private or Catholic school was down only five percentile ranks. So a drop, but not as large of a drop as their public school counterparts. Um, and of course, we can only in the modeling that we did, we can only isolate an individual demographic. So we can compare right. a public school to a non-public school. Uh, we do know that students with uh, disabilities, students who are high poverty uh, in 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 nature, they were more impacted. So you know that that kind of goes to say is you know if you are a green leafy suburb kind of school serving you know fairly advantaged kids, yeah, they weren't nearly as impacted as their you know, let's say lower income, uh, you know, counterparts uh, in, in some areas. Um, and also we surprisingly saw, which was another prediction that actually did come true, rural and small town schools were more impacted than their suburban and urban counterparts. Uh, and we don't know why completely, but a lot of people have hypothesized 
that because so much of what we did was based on distance learning, uh, that if you lived in an area where, you know, internet connectivity is, is a bit more of a challenge, you couldn't connect to things as well as your suburban and urban counterparts. So that was a really interesting right. one that actually uh, was predicted. We haven't really broken, you know, our demographics down nationally too much like that, but there was a, per- a fairly significant difference between small town rural versus urban suburban. That's a really fascinating trend. And I think it, it suggests that this particular question, and, and I'm not really sure to the extent to which the, uh, the How Kids Are Performing study really answers this question, because we, we get a lot of information in this study in terms of what happened, but not necessarily why it happened. And you hypothesized about sort of the the math slide in grades four, five, and six being related to the actual concepts that are being assessed around those grade yeah. levels. Does the study suggest anything else in terms of why some of these impacts of the pandemic may have happened to student achievement and growth? Really, it's it's beyond the scope of what we could do. So, I mean, you know, researchers yeah. are always going to tell you, this is what we can tell you, and this is what we cannot tell you. So uh, there wasn't right. a lot of way that we could construct this to get those definitive answers. We have theories that seem very logical. The other thing that we did that I think was also helpful to people is, um, you know, we all studied what percentile ranks were undergraduate. We, we know how to talk about them, but right. we also translated those drops into weeks of growth. Uh, because people can touch that and you can explain that to a parent. So what that right. means is in terms of the reading drops, many grades are pretty close to where they need to be, you know, no more than three weeks behind. There are some grades that are four to seven weeks behind. Math, you know, we know that math is more impacted. Most grades in math, the kids started about eight to 11 weeks behind where they typically mm-hmm. would have started the year. And in the most impacted grades, it was 12 or more weeks behind. So uh, with math, if you think about it being 12 weeks, the kids are behind, that's almost as many weeks as we were away for COVID. Right. Uh, and so I was speaking with one imp- reporter. And I said, you know, it's almost like somebody pressed a gigantic pause button on math. You know, the kids didn't regress all that much, but they didn't grow. So, you know, really a lot of our kids are stuck back where they would have been last spring. Uh, because they just didn't move ahead in there. It's a whole lot easier for kids to maintain and maybe even move ahead with reading. If kids do a modest amount of reading every day, they don't, they don't regress, but they just aren't as capable of, you know, moving ahead in any way, shape or form with math. Um, And so that's, you know, that it's just an interesting dynamic there. That eight to 12 weeks, depending on, on your perspective, I mean, that's very much like a glass half empty, glass half full kind of kind of stat line there, right? Because you could think, oh, eight to 12 weeks, I think if we're really intense with what we do in terms of curriculum and curriculum instruction and assessment, we can overcome that. Or for some, you know, for some people, you might look at that and go, man, that's almost a third of the year. Like, how do we, like, how do we address that? And And is it, is it, is it reasonable to to say like how how different could that have been if we had not been doing certain things with remote learning from the beginning of the pandemic to the end of the year? Like, is it possible to say yeah. like it could have been way different? Well, some other people know, are saying that. So, one of the larger yeah. studies that actually predicted more loss basically mm-hmm. said, well, the reason that our predictions were off was schools did such a good job with their remote learning. <laughs> I, you get we, right. we don't know whether that's the answer or not. Here's what I will say about that 8 to 12 weeks, because, I mean, really, for most grades with math, that's what we're talking about. Two things. One, when we say that they're 8 to 12 weeks behind, what we mean is you would have had a broad, you would have to bring kids back 8 to 12 weeks early 
and teach them 8 to 12 weeks of content to just catch them up with where they would have started the year this year. Uh, also, too, the only models we had were historical growth models. So when we say 8 to 12 weeks of growth, we mean 8 to 12 normal weeks of growth, pre-COVID weeks. A big question that we're trying to answer right now is, how much content do you cover during a COVID week? Because, you know, we all naively in the spring thought, oh, by back to school, everything will be normal. We'll be all back in, and we're not. You know, so we're still right. seeing the disruption. So it's one thing to be saying, how did the kids start this fall? But it's another thing to be measuring, and what's happening during this year? Because there's every reason to believe that what's happening this year may not be as, you know, ultimately growing. You know, kids may not be moving as fast now as they would have. Uh, so, you know, we're, we're, there's much more research yet to be done, uh, in, you know, in this overall dynamic. Yeah, I think there's definitely, I, I think it's great that this report is out there, that it, it helps provide a picture of, you know, where our kids started at the beginning of this school year. Uh, but I think there's also, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm hearing this and I'm seeing this and I'm feeling this, and there is an overwhelmed teacher educator out there that's listening to this and thinking, okay, I've got kids in front of me. And when I look through the data, yeah. maybe I haven't had a chance to really dive into the data because I've just been trying to keep my head above water. What do I do, generally speaking, either like, in a broad sense or in a very specific sense for the kids that are in front of me that are entrusted to my care, what can I do in response to some of the findings here? Yeah, actually a couple of resources that we didn't mention. I'll queue up one and I'll let Julie talk about it a little bit. First of all, for the report, you can get all the access you want to it by going to renaissance.com forward slash performing. And you, you can see there are awesome. webinars there. You can download awesome. the report. There's a tool where you can look at state-specific data there, all kinds of stuff. But ultimately, we also want to provide an answer, like, what are you going to do? So once you kind of figure out the challenge at forward slash renaissance forward slash performing, the next place to go is to renaissance.com forward slash focus skills uh, with a dash between those words. So focus dash skills. That's a free tool that we put up in the spring. And Julie, maybe you want to tell folks a little bit about what, what's available to them. And it's free to everybody. You do not have to be a Renaissance customer to use this site. Uh, so Julie, you want to tell them what's there and what they might be able to do? I absolutely love this site. It is free to everyone. It's open to every single educator out there, whether you use our products or not. So it's really important to us to offer this to everyone. And focus skills are the skill, the most important skills in reading and math that there are. As we know, there are thousands of skills if you're going to teach someone how to read. And there's thousands of skills for math as well. Some skills are way more important than others and more foundational. And you have to know those skills in order to keep progressing and moving forward. So what Renaissance has done over the years and in building and developing our incredible learning progression the first skill to the 1300th skill for math or whatever it is, or the first skill to the 1400 for reading, is we've identified the most important skills at every single grade level. So those are the skills that we want teachers to focus on and to teach those skills to their kids because there's no way that we can do business as usual. There's no way learning is going to be the same if it's remote and not in a classroom. So if we can get teachers to spend just a little bit of time looking at the focus skills for their grade level, possibly the focus skills in the grade level before, too, to help move kids forward and to get them going faster, that's what we recommend. Um, 
And it's easy to access, it's easy to use, it's for every single state. You can look at what the state requirements are and get the state-by-state -state focus skills for whatever state your Catholic school is in. Yeah, we'll give you an example. So I was working with a particular year level in a school in the UK. And it's not year it's not grades over there, it's year levels. And we were looking at their standards. And at that particular year level, there were a lot of standards around place value, all of which qualifies being focus skills. Because if you don't get your hands around place value, you're not going to move ahead too terribly well in mathematics. At that same year level, there were some standards in there on Roman numerals. Now let's be clear, one of those topics you must get to move forward, and the other topic is a nice to have extra. Something that when push comes to shove, you can probably let go of to a fair degree and not you know, profoundly impact students' forward progress. I think focus skills basically say, you know, prioritize, prioritize, prioritize. Let us help you figure out what matters the most because we are under pressure. We do not have time to cover everything but we need to know the things that matter the most. And, and that site will identify for you the most essential skills for both reading and math for each grade level and for each state. That's such a, a great resource. And I'm glad that that's something that's available to, to all educators, regardless of whether they're using Renaissance learning products, because what a, what a challenge, right, for an educator, and this is even pre-pandemic, to figure out, I have a limited amount of instructional time with kids, what's going to give me the most bang for the buck? And, and obviously, we know as a result of the pandemic that A, instructional time matters, B, quality instructional time matters, and C, we can mitigate and really work with students and be able to address any learning loss or gaps that might have come about, about by harnessing those focus skills that seems like a really really fantastic resource it is um, any other things to think about um for educators in a very practical sense on on how they can take the findings and the suggestions from the uh how kids are performing study and move forward well again go to that that site because it's not just about the tool that's there but we do encourage folks to watch the webinars that are there uh Great. we we have a lot of very specific guidance about how do you go about planning instruction now like when you know that it's more likely for kids to have gaps when you know that it's more important this year than any other year to check on prerequisites. Uh, that's kind of spelled out. And you know, like I said, once you go to renaissance.com forward slash focus skills, uh, you'll see the tool, but you also have the ability to uh, watch the webinars that are there and, and read some of the blogs. Uh, and the webinars will model for you. Uh, there's some infographics that are there from uh, Ed Week that talk about planning instruction, but it's exactly what you said, John, about we have to focus on the things that absolutely matter the most and plan the super high quality instruction uh, that gets right at these learning gaps, fills them, and then moves on as quickly as we can. That's tremendous. That's great. Uh, two questions to take us home. Uh, second to last question, you know, you alluded in terms of limitations of the study, and I think a way we can positively frame this is, what are the questions that Renaissance uh, hopes to answer about student achievement and growth uh, that you, you're currently working on getting the answers to? So what don't we know as a result of the study, and what do we hope to know in the coming weeks and months? Well, I think the most, the most important thing that we know, well, first of all, we'll we be able to do more in terms of demographics, break things down more by various subgroups. Uh, we'll be able to know more. There's a lot of questions about remote testing because some of these tests were taken remotely. We'll learn more about that. But the most important question we've got to answer right now is how are kids growing during this school year? We know how they started the year. We know that they started, for example, math on average eight to 11 weeks behind. 
But the next important question is, uh, and how are they growing this year? So what we're going to do is this. You know, many schools that use STAR regularly, they'll give a fall, a winter, and a spring screening with a test. So what that means is starting somewhere in the middle of January and running through the middle of February, you know, millions of kids will be taking the test again. What our research team is going to do then is once that, you know, really robust window of testing begins to, you know, decline and the testing begins to drop off a little bit, uh, we will go in and we will analyze what is there. Uh, and that will be able to allow us to say some things about how did growth, uh, you know, to what degree did growth occur during the first half of the school year? Uh, you know, are kids progressing this year as fast as they did in most years or are they moving more slowly which means that the gaps that we had in the beginning of the year might be closing or they might be expanding or they might be staying the same. That's the next question. So, you know, some of the most important next questions revolve around growth during this year and, and how are kids growing broadly? What about the demographic subgroups? Because it could be that some kids are catching up quite nicely and other populations of kids are not catching up equally. Uh, so we could be exacerbating achievement gaps. So uh, a lot, a lot, a lot of focus on growth. So I want to talk about this growth piece because I think this is really huge. And I think it could be a mantra for teachers and educators and leaders to really say, whatever the impact the pandemic had on the student population we serve, our priority really is to say, if it takes us a year, two years, three years to, to mitigate eight to 16 or 22 weeks of learning loss, whatever the number might be that we have in our minds, the priority is focusing on growth. And the way that Renaissance measures growth in the STAR assessments, could you talk a little bit about this idea? Because it's referenced quite often in the report, and it may not be something that folks are familiar with, this idea of student growth percentile. Yeah, so uh, student growth percentiles are a particular form of growth score. Uh, and that's really important. The gentleman that created student growth percentiles, uh, SGPs for short, uh, it's Dr. Damien Biedewetter. Uh He's with the Center for Assessment in Dover, New Hampshire. And over 30 states uh, use SGP models whenever they talk about growth. And, and here's why. Uh, Damien is famous for a short phrase that he says. He says, subtraction is not a growth model. And if you think about what we historically did in schools with growth, we usually use subtraction. You know, we did a pretest. We did a post-test and we subtracted, you know, the pretest right. from the post-test mm -hmm. and any growth that there was, that was growth. Uh, and what Damien is saying is there's a couple of problems with doing that. First of all, you know, for example, we might have said, oh, the kids started the year at the 47th percentile. Uh, he or she finished the year at the 48th percentile. Therefore, they are plus one. Uh, and Damien says there's a couple of problems with that. Number one, you're relying upon scores. Uh, like percentile ranks and grade level equivalent scores that were divine or designed to rank performance and not quantify growth. Um, and so, for example, percentile ranks are not an, an equal interval kind of thing. Moving from 50 to 51 is not the same as moving from 97 to 98. They are very, very different on the extreme ends. Um, the other thing is uh, that uh, other scores beyond SGPs don't consider other really relevant factors. Uh, so, for example, with student growth percentiles, we compare students to their academic peers. So if you've got a kid in the top 10%, we compare their growth to other kids at that same grade level also in the top 10% of performance. Or if you're in the bottom 10%, 
We compare you to really low performance, or if you're in the middle 10%. So the end result is you get much more of an apples to apples kind of comparison. Um, any teacher that you know ever teaches you know really high performing kids, you know how hard it is to keep them up there, and and they fluctuate in scores, and there's a name for that. Statistically, psychometricians and Julie, I'm, I'm like in her camp now, so Julie will come and correct me because like this is her degree, so I'm the layperson. Julie give you the right language, but the concept of regression to the mean, in other words, as kids take a test multiple times, they tend to regress towards the mean. All that means is higher performing kids often have some more typical looking scores, which for them are lower, uh, and low performing kids every now and then they get a higher looking score more towards the mean, which for them is a little bit higher. Um, student growth percentiles factor in all of this. They wash out regression to the mean so that if there's a dip, it really is a dip, not just a score fluctuation. They compare kids who are high performing to other kids that are high performing. So there's a lot of things happening behind the scenes that just doing an older pre-test, post-test model does not factor in, but SGPs do factor it in, which makes it a much, much, much more refined way to look at growth and simply doing a pre-test, post-test and subtract the difference uh, kind of thing from there. Uh, Julie, you want to add to that? Because again, that's your uh, your wheelhouse. I'm sorry, I stepped into it. So you can refine it and probably say it a lot better than I did. I really don't think I have to. You have been immersed in this probably more than I have in the last six to eight months, Jean, with all of your work in preparing for this study and working with our research team. And I am impressed. You did an excellent job of talking about regression to the mean and I do love the fact that I want to reiterate again that growth is not a subtraction model, and that's the beauty of our growth scores is comparing like academic peers to like academic peers. That's truly how much you see kids moving and changing when you do that. So thank you for that. Yeah, I would tell people if you have SGP access, use it, because it's, it's the best score out there for growth. If you don't, you can look at the percentiles. And the differences there, there are, however, going to be some shortcomings. Uh, and if you need help with that, we'd love to help you with that. Uh, but it, it's just a far more sophisticated way to really get a true read on growth than any other score. And the reason is it's built to be a growth score. None of those other scores was designed to be a growth. They were designed to be ranking of performance, your percentile rank. Uh, and this score actually was designed to measure growth. So it's, it's purpose built. Uh, to do exactly what its name is, give you some, you know, norm-based kind of reference around growth. That's tremendous. I think that's a really, really clear explanation for folks. And and hopefully as, as leaders and teachers are prioritizing, looking at data, having conversations about the data on how to best support students, really, because that's that is our ultimate goal in using data to support learners in Catholic schools, that the focus A is on growth and B also to ensure that the measures that we use to track growth are, are accurate, that they're equitable, um, and that they really paint a picture about the impact that we can have on students. Um, so I want to close with sort of a bonus question here, and I keep faking people out by saying this is our last question, but I just, I'm excited by this conversation, and I think this piece is really necessary to help bring this home for folks, especially as we pick up on this last half of the year. And this is really for, for you, Dr. Vogel. You know, I think given your work at Renaissance Learning and, and your past experience, your past and present experience working with Catholic schools, um, how do we have like meaningful and impactful uh, conversations about the data that we're seeing in terms of student achievement and growth in Catholic schools? How do we how do we approach these conversations? How do we approach these efforts? 
Well, that's a pretty loaded question for your last bonus question. Um, but it's a really <laughs> great question too, John. So I really love the question. And in your, your response to approach, you know, we in, in Catholic schools were all about helping kids meet their God-given gifts and talents and use them and develop them to the best of their abilities so they can grow up and give back to others. It's one of the reasons I like the Renaissance products so much. It's because when I'm looking at growth, I'm looking at how far are kids getting? What are we doing to get there? Are we using the data in a way that really maximizes their potential? And are we looking at multiple forms of data? I think our STAR assessment is one fabulous assessment tool. And I also think there are other things out there that teachers know about their kids in Catholic schools and know about our communities that add to that data richness and to really help our kids grow and succeed. So I think as far as approach goes, it's what can we do to maximize everything that our kids have been given by God and how can we help them translate that into success in their life? So I think if we keep the conversations focused where they need to be on kids and how kids and what teachers can do to help kids grow and forget about the rest, we're going to go a lot farther. That's tremendous. Dr. Kearns, anything to add? Yeah, I would just say I believe that if, if you know what matters the most in terms of you know academic skills and focus skills give you that answer, and you know how to track your kids against those skills, you can overcome whatever it is that you face. So every single day what we need is high-quality instruction focused on what matters the most that, that's measured through really good ongoing formative assessment. And then some days, fall, winter, and spring screening, we need the information that normative tests give us. So we need those percentile ranks. We need those student growth percentiles. If we have really high quality instruction every day on what matters the most, and then we check on those things at those regular intervals, again, we'll be doing what we need to do for kids. Uh, and whatever it is that COVID throws at us, uh, we'll handle. I, I love to meme this all the other day. It said, uh, your kids are not, you know, not failing to grow, whatever, you are surviving a pandemic. And, you know, we got to put this in context. You know, we are surviving a pandemic. So it, I kind of guess it, maybe it is sort of a glass half full as opposed to half empty. We're going through some tough stuff. Yeah, there's going to be impacts, but we can deal with this. I mean, we have the research. We know what to do. We are surviving a pandemic, and, and we will. We will survive this, and we will address whatever it is kids need academically. And our kids will be successful. There's just no doubt about it. So I do think Gene and I are both kind of glass half full people who will always say, yes, it can be done. Focus, work hard, measure it, and it will get done. And I think we at NCR are right there with you, glass half full, and that we see that glass being filled every single day by passionate leaders and teachers that are working for the benefit of, of, of kids and families. So uh, Dr. Kearns, Dr. Vogel, thank you so much for being able to spend some time with us and really help unpack uh, what we've learned in terms of navigating the pandemic and where we have an opportunity to grow and thrive. Uh, so thank you. Thank you. Thanks, John. Awesome. So for those of you listening to the NCEA podcast, this is John Reyes with NCEA. Thank you so much, and we'll catch you on the next episode. Peace.